there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, yeah. talking today with my friend Bob Lapine. And it's great to be here and to have the opportunity not only to uh, talk with you, but also in the studio with us is Nancy Lee DeMoss. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Bob and Elizabeth. Good to be with both of you. Well, I want to zero in today on what I think is uh, a theme that, well, Elizabeth, for more than the 12 years that this program has been on the air, really for uh, the last 30 or 40 years, you have been calling women to a picture of womanhood that is that is foreign in our culture. And let me tell you a little story. It was a few years back that I was taking my oldest daughter, Amy, uh, around to look at colleges. And we would sit down with the admissions officer at these colleges and after we'd had the campus tour, the admissions officer would look at my daughter and say, what do you want to study? And she would say, I'm not sure. I'm thinking either English literature or philosophy. And the next question, inevitably, invariably, every situation was, what do you hope to do with that? What career do you plan to go into? And about the third or fourth time we got asked that question, I looked at Amy and said, wouldn't you like to say, I'm really here just to learn. You still do that, don't you? I mean, I can still come just to learn. And yet the, the focus for, I think for all of our young women today, the, the culture almost assumes that uh, you're going to find your identity in the marketplace. The scriptures don't talk a lot about, uh, about what your uh, vocation is going to be in the marketplace as a woman. It, it doesn't exclude that as an option for women, and yet it doesn't say find your identity there. What, what is God's unique call for women to be women, do you think? I think the scripture is very clear that, generally speaking, women are meant to be wives and mothers. They are meant to raise children for the glory of God. And I'm very thankful that I came from a home in which that was what my mother aimed at and never wanted anything else. Mm -hmm. Things have changed rather dramatically within the last 20 years so that women are being pressured more and more to do something really useful rather than just sit around and iron and cook and things like that. I think there's a certain amount of sea change now that women have had enough of that nonsense and they swallowed it whole pretty much back in the late 60s and early 70s. And it sounded so liberating and so wonderful. And we had people like Gloria Steinem getting out there and screaming and yelling at women and <laughs> telling them, you know, you don't have to leave, listen to these characters called men. But I'm very thankful for the fact that I receive very many letters nowadays from women who are very contented with what God has given them in being homemakers. Generally speaking, women are meant to be homemakers. Mm -hmm. I also applaud the single women, and I feel sorry that there are so many single women who really should be married, but the men are scared. Mm -hmm. The men are not even paying any attention 
to whether they themselves ought to be looking for a godly woman so that they could have a family of their own. Mm. I thank God for the many great Christian single women that we know who are, most of them I would say, are are missionaries. But I never had any ambition except to be a missionary. I certainly was not thinking of being a broadcaster or anything like that, and I, I wasn't thinking of writing any books or anything. I just was expecting that the Lord would give me the privilege of doing what missionaries have always done, and that's going into all the world to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until my second, third year in college that I realized that God had given me a gift in linguistics. So then I began specifically to aim toward getting linguistic training so that I could work with unwritten tribes. Mm-hmm. Nancy, I was thinking about the fact that young girls growing up today, my daughter, born in 1981, all she's ever known is a culture that says, you should find your self-worth and your satisfaction outside the home. That's been the dominant message, and for her to hear anything else sounds completely countercultural. I do think the revolution has been very pervasive. In fact, last week I was looking at an old issue of Time magazine, not that old, but 1990. Time magazine did a full issue just on the subject of women. And I looked through the pages of that issue, and there were all kinds of profiles and stories about women who had attained success in various fields and lots of articles about different issues that women deal with, equity in the workplace, et cetera. And what was striking to me about the issue was the almost total absence, conspicuous absence, of any reference to home. Hmm. And where there was reference to marriage or to family, it tended to be more things like stay-at-home dads, uh, lesbian marriage relationships, and these things that are counter to the ways of God as he's established it. And I realize that women, not just in their 20s, but really 40 or younger today, have not known anything other than to think this very different way, which was brought into our culture with great intent and foresight and thought, trying to stir up discontent among women who didn't know that they were unhappy, mm-hmm. being keepers at home, loving and serving their husbands and their children. And the tragic thing is, and I think God has so used Elizabeth and her writings and ministry to point this out, is that far from gaining the hoped-for sense of self-worth and liberation, we've really had something very precious stolen from us. Mm-hmm. I think of Elizabeth's book years ago, Let Me Be a Woman. Mm-hmm. And that has been such a wonderful uh, watch cry, I think, for women who are now growing up and want just the privilege of being a woman, not to have to be something that God didn't make them to be. So God really has used Elizabeth as an older woman to minister to those of us in the next generation who are now ministering to the next generation and saying, it's okay. And it's not only okay, it's precious, it's beautiful, it's wonderful to embrace your womanhood and your call to the home. I have to tell you, I spent a little time recently as a homemaker. My wife had the opportunity to go with her mother on an extended trip. And I said, I'd love for you to do that, honey. I'll stay home with the children. Well, I can understand how after I had 12 days of being a homemaker, I can understand where somebody could come along at the end of the 12 days and say, 
find fulfillment somewhere else. Because as you said, Elizabeth, the the chores, the the tedium of ironing and washing clothes doesn't take long before you go, is this all there is to life? Well, I'm a real freak because I love ironing and washing <laughs> clothes and washing dishes by hand. We have a dishwasher, of course, but there's only two of us right now. And it seems to me kind of ridiculous to put a few dishes in the washing machine. So uh, to me, it's a great respite to be able to leave my computer and my typewriter and just go downstairs. I, I always look forward to breakfast, lunch, and supper because it's so easy. You know, it's very easy to do. And since Nancy was talking about what was happening in the last two decades at mm. least, I was remembering how when Jane Pauley left the radio, uh, she was she was sort of in the vanguard of a whole exodus of women who had just decided they'd been given a package of goods that was just baloney. Mm-hmm. And they began making a real exodus back to the home and having children. And I just thought this is a very encouraging sign. I don't know how how much longer it may go on. Maybe there'll be another flip. But uh, God knew exactly what he was doing when he made women women and, and men men. And we should be so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful to have a husband who is a man. He's a real man. But he's also a kind man and a godly man. And God has given me such tremendous privileges that, well, as my dear old friend Dorothy used to say, I I just have so many blessings, I don't know how to thank the Lord for them. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that every experience, if offered to Jesus, is our gateway to joy. Mm -hmm. And the experience may be taking care of a sick grandfather or taking care of, of a child who is perhaps going to be lame for life, uh, washing the dishes, and of course every now and then the dishwasher or the stove or something else goes on a, on the blink and you just want to throw your hands up and think, how did I ever get into this mess? But there's something about laundry and godliness, <laughs> the willingness to do the humble, ordinary thing, which needs to be done. Why shouldn't it be done by me? And the older I get, the more I appreciate the privilege of having laundry to do, dishes to wash, uh, houses to clean. If we could only realize that all of these things which are incumbent upon us and required, when they're offered to Jesus, they really are transformed. There's something totally transforming about it. And when you think of, of that little Mary, and I always think of her as being somewhere between 12 and 14 years old, she didn't have any quibble. She said, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Let it happen, as you say, or be it unto me according to thy word. In modern English, anything you say, Lord, here I am. Do anything you want with me. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking again today with Bob Lapine. And we have also in the studio with us Nancy Lee DeMoss as we uh, 
as we look at women today and the challenges that uh, that are before them, and I know that coming up for you is a special occasion, your granddaughter, your namesake, right? Yes. Your granddaughter Elizabeth is about to become uh, a young wife. And when your daughter Valerie was about to become a young wife, you sat down and did, did you start writing a letter and it just turned into a book, or did you plan it would be a book all along? Well, I'm sure I wrote her a number of letters, but uh, I felt very strongly that I needed to write a book because I had been reading so much junk that I thought is really useless stuff. Maybe as Valerie's mother, I need to write a book for her specifically. Mm-hmm. And that was my wedding present to my daughter. Mm-hmm. And my publisher was kind enough to make a leather-bound copy of that for my wedding present for her. And it was really just putting down on paper what undoubtedly I had learned mostly from my own mother. And my mother had come from a very wealthy family, actually, and they had two maids and a butler. So she never had to do any housework until she married my father, who was relatively poor by comparison, and they became missionaries in Belgium. And they lived in a fifth-floor walk-up that my father had to lug all the water up the stairs and all the water back down the stairs after it had been used. And, you know, things were very, very tight as when they were missionaries, and that's where I was born. So it was, it was always in my mind that we don't have anything, and I very much remember the d- depression. All, all of you people here in the studio are way too young to know about that, but I'm very aware of how tight things were. But it, there was never a word of complaint from my mother, mm-hmm. even though she had had to step way down from where she had been. And my father absolutely adored her. Mm-hmm. So I am blessed beyond anything anybody could be blessed. Her example was the model for you, not only in being a wife and a mom, but also then in what you passed on to Valerie. Would you change anything today in what you would say to Elizabeth as she heads toward the altar? Or would you just hand her another leather-bound copy of Let Me Be a Woman and say, here, I still believe all of this and more? Yes, Bob, I think that's, that's exactly what I would be inclined to do, would be to say, I think I've told you everything that I would want to say if you and I could sit down as grandmother and granddaughter. You'll find it in my book called Let Me Be a Woman, Mm -hmm. because I tried to put down all that I had learned from my mother and all that I wanted to pass on to your mother, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that she would read it eagerly. I Mm -hmm. think she will. Nancy, you uh, speak to women all across the country, many women who uh, it doesn't take long after they've gotten married before they're dissatisfied with what they thought was going to bring them great hope, great joy. Now all of a sudden it's a source of pain for them. What happens and what can women do to, uh, to be back where they want to be in a marriage relationship? You know, I think, Bob, the fact is that whether we're married or single, children or childless, at every season of life, If we're trying to find fulfillment and contentment and joy through anything or anyone other than Christ himself, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Mm -hmm. 
And so many women today are trying to find joy through their circumstances. But as Elizabeth has taught so many of us as women, joy is a choice. Contentment is a choice. And it comes as a result of obedience. It comes through abandon to Christ and surrender to Him. You know, our natural flesh tells us if you let go, if you abandon yourself to the will of God, you're going to be destined to this life that is too rigorous, too hard, and unbearable. But the truth is, when we hold on to our lives, when we try to pursue our own happiness as our ultimate objective, we're going to have the truly hard life. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I am meek and humble in spirit, and that's how you find rest for your soul. You think young women expect too much from marriage today? I don't think it's just young women. I think it's all women and maybe men too. I can't speak for them. Uh, but the fact is that we, we expect too much from life. We expect it to make me happy. We expect it to satisfy me. And the fact is, as believers, it's not about us. Mm -hmm. It's not about my happiness, my joy, my well-being. It's about the glory of God and the kingdom of Christ. And the only means to real joy and contentment is to make His glory the supreme objective in my life. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, I've heard you say that it didn't take long after you were first married to Jim Elliott before you realized that it wasn't going to be the perfect experience that maybe you had thought it was going to be for the five and a half years that you corresponded with him and courted with him. Uh, what what was the wake-up call in the first 24 hours for you? <laughs> well, I don't know about the 24 hours. Uh, we went to a very fancy hotel in Panama. We had a wonderful uh, seven days there, I think, and then we went to visit my brother who was living in Costa Rica at that time. But I do remember our first home was a tent, a leaky 16 by 16 foot tent that some well-meaning person back in Oregon had given to Jim to take to the, the wild yonder in South America. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained. <laughs> I will never forget one night when we had tried to patch all the places that needed to be patched, and it was pitch dark, and the rain was pouring down, and Jim had gotten so ill with malaria almost as soon as we got there that he had not had time even to dig the trench around the tent. So we, the water was coming in onto the floor, the bed was sinking down into the mud, and I dropped my pillow into the mud, and Jim had used up his battery and his flashlight, and we were trying to find the holes in the roof where they were dripping from. You know, well, you can't use a flashlight in a pitch-dark tent to find the holes. It's just not possible. We thought it would be, but it wasn't. And after he had used up his batteries in his phone, he, he grabbed mine. You know, at that point, I just, everything fell apart. I screamed at I said, would you give me back my flashlight? You know, he said, would you shut your mouth? <laughs> and then we both just burst out laughing, and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, of course, the bed was sinking down further and further into the mud, and the pillows were falling off. <laughs> it 
was a very miserable night, I could assure you. And it went on for a long time after that because he continued to have malaria. I've forgotten how long. But I'm sure I'm not talking to very many people today who've had that exact situation. But maybe you've had something much worse. And all your childhood and girlhood dreams have burst their bubbles. And there just isn't anything like what you expected it to be. And I've had a lot of letters from young women like that who thought that they had learned everything and find out that they're stuck with a plain old human being, Mm -hmm. a sinful person. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything else to marry. And I say that to women all the time. You know, when you've got to remember, whatever you marry, he's a sinner. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything else to marry. Mm -hmm. I've also heard you say, I think you've used the the picture of a a white shirt with a spot on it, you know, and and how we focus in on the spot when it stands out on the white shirt rather than focusing on the white part. A lot of women need to get their eyes off the spot and onto the the white part of their husband, don't they? Yes, and as my second husband had said, you know, maybe 80% is a good number to thank the Lord for, you can spend the rest of your life picking away at the other 20%, and you're not going to reduce it by very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things, uh, again, I, I find these wonderful quotes from your book, The Music of His Promises, just a real simple statement. You say, we need to look up and look away from ourselves. And Nancy, that's a part of what women and men, for that matter, need to be called to and need to be reminded of, that if our focus is on us, uh, it will lead us to misery, won't it? That's right, Bob. And Elizabeth has so reminded us of the importance of examining what is my goal in life. I love that quote. I've heard you use a number of times about the wine drunk versus the wine poured out, and that we need to examine and see what is it that we're really living for and what matters most to us. Is it for my own personal pleasure and well-being, or is it to be poured out, to be spent for the sake of the glory of God and the sake of others? That's the pathway of love. It is a pathway of the cross, pathway of sacrifice, but it's the pathway to ultimate joy, as you have reminded us so many times. Mm-hmm. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with my friend, Bob Lapine. That's right. And we have also joining us in the studio, Elizabeth, Nancy Lee DeMoss. And uh, I was thinking about uh, people I know who have, have come up to me and reflected back on books or messages or uh, talks they've heard you give, Elizabeth, life-changing encounters through your obedience to do what God has gifted you to do in writing books and in speaking. Uh, I I think about the book, The Mark of a Man, and how uh, that has really long before there were ever any promise keepers around, that was a book calling men to be covenant keepers. And then Let Me Be a Woman that you wrote for your daughter, Valerie. Uh, Of course, uh, the book Shadow of the Almighty and uh, Through Gates of Splendor, chronicling the times with, uh, with Jim Elliott and with the Alcas. 
And then Passion and Purity and Quest for Love. Those books are really companion books related to the whole issue of purity. You've written books on suffering. What are you, 28 books? Is that right? Yes, I believe so. That's a lot of a lot of writing. And Nancy, I know many of those books uh, have been books that you've read. As you think back about uh, uh, Elizabeth's writing and her speaking, does anything stand out as, as being most influential? Well, I've read most of those books that you just referred to and been influenced by all of them in different ways. I was born just after the uh, Elizabeth's husband, Jim Elliott, was martyred by the Aka Indians. And then early in those years, uh, she wrote Shadow of the Almighty, followed by others. And I came to know the Lord as a little girl and then almost teethed on Christian biographies. We didn't have a television in our home, and my parents encouraged us to do a lot of reading, and they helped select reading for us. Of course, I'm so thankful for that today, but I read every biography of missionaries and Christian workers that I could get my hands on. And in those early childhood years, uh, the Lord brought across my path books like The Shadow of the Almighty, uh, The Savage, My Kinsman, later The Journals of Jim Elliott. And these were among books that God used in a significant way to call me to a full consecration of my life to the Lord mm. and to give me a love and a heart and a passion for ministry. In fact, I remember as a little girl writing to my parents a letter telling them that I felt that God had called me to be a missionary for him and uh, in a very passionate way, spelling out my heart to serve the Lord. And I know that it was books like the ones that Elizabeth has written of the, of the biographical nature mm-hmm. that so stirred my heart, fanned a flame in my heart of passion uh, for the Lord that still really burns hotly today. And those books were a key part of that. I have a friend who in church this past Sunday said, anytime you're going to talk about Amy Carmichael on the radio, give me fair warning so that I can tune out so as not to become under so much conviction. Because anytime I hear about the life of Amy Carmichael, I'm just brought to <laughs> to a terrible point of conviction. So this is a warning for my friend. This is a time to tune out. That book, A Chance to Die, uh, chronicles one of the great heroes of our era, doesn't it? Yes, you realize she wrote 40 books, (laughs) and there are only about 17 of them that are still available, but they are available. Every one of them is worth its weight in gold. Mm -hmm. And I think I've read all of them, most most of them more than once. Mm-hmm. But she has certainly been a great watchword to me. And of course, she was a beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. There's a very recent book with all the poetry that she ever wrote that has come out. It's a really thick book. Have you got that? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Mountain Breezes, it's yes, called. Yes, it is a real treasure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was delighted that that was brought out because Amy Carmichael would never have thought of putting any of them in a book. It's fortunate that some of them were rescued. But. You, you've read A Chance to Die as well, haven't you? I have. And I'll tell you, if, if your friend is convicted, all you need to be convicted by that book is just the title itself, <laughs> See in It, A Chance to Die. And that mm-hmm. really is, hers was a life, as has been Elizabeth's, of calling us to that life of self-sacrifice, of surrender, of abandon. And uh, that has helped me to have God's perspective on so many circumstances of life, seeing it a chance to die. And then in that, an opportunity to offer up to the Lord some sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. I was going to say that I had a hard time with the English people who had worked under Amy Carmichael. They didn't like that uh, title at all. And I had to 
just argue with them a little bit. Well, know? it's not a very comfortable title, and probably, I don't know, the marketing people yeah. might not think it was well, wonderful. Well, for some reason, it's, it continues to sell constantly. And there are very, very few books in the Christian bookstores that are that big and that thick, but it goes on. And I was so glad that eventually they gave me their blessing. But I don't know what Amy herself would have thought of it, but it's certainly something that I learned from her writings. You know, yes. She cautioned the women who worked with her to say, whatever the situation may be, always learn to see in it a chance to die. Hmm. In other words, die to yourself. You know, all your own ambitions and things you think you can do or ought to do or want to do. Just... And that is so contrary to our natural way of mm-hmm. responding, but it is God's way. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I think one of the aspects of your legacy, as, as I think about the last 40-plus years of ministry that you've been involved with, uh, one of the things that you've done in the book about Amy Carmichael, in the books about Jim Elliott, as you've told stories about Gladys Aylward and about others, you've, you've raised missionaries to the rightful place of hero status at a time when nobody looks at missionaries as heroes. You grew up with that, that vision. Missionaries were real heroes as you were growing up, and you've shed that vision for a new generation in your writings. Yes, and I, I remember Betty Scott visiting in our home when I was pr- probably four or five years old. I don't remember her vividly, but I just remember the fact that she was there. And it wasn't until I learned that she and her husband had been killed by Chinese communists that I realized what missionary life is really meant to be. And the fact that that lady had sat at our dinner table was just stunning to me. When my father came home, I was 10 years old, and he came home with a newspaper, a Philadelphia newspaper, telling about the martyrdom of John and Betty Stamm. They had been captured by Chinese communists. They were marched half-naked through the streets of a Chinese village, and she had to watch while they chopped his head off, and then they put her head on the chopping block. And had she had her head chopped off. And to think that that lady had sat at our dinner table, that made it just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And it was when I was about 12 or 13 that I came across her prayer, which I made my own. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, Hmm. now and forever. And I copied that into my Bible and asked the Lord to give me that kind of a martyrdom if he wanted me to have that. When you went to your mom and dad and said, I feel the call to the mission field, after they'd had Betty Stamm at the dinner table and they knew what had happened to her, did they say, well, we're so thrilled, God bless you? My parents were missionaries, too, so they were missionaries in Belgium. That's why I happened to be born over there. So they had missions in their minds, and my mother, although she came from a very posh Episcopal church where they didn't talk much about missionaries at all, uh, she went to a missionary 
time at, I think it was uh, Stony Brook School in New York, and she heard missionaries speak then, and it was then that she really began to ask the Lord, do you want me to be a missionary? And she couldn't imagine doing it, but she thought she ought to at least ask the Lord. And so when she married my father, they were, they were poor missionaries in Belgium for just those five years when I was born and my older brother. But five out of the six of us became missionaries. So our parents, of course, sort of had to take a little gasp of breath each time they would hear that one more child had decided to become a missionary, but they never in any way tried to, tried to stop us. And just the one who was not a missionary has always been into in Christian work. Mm-hmm. So it was routine for us to read missionary biographies. I guess I have a shelf about that long mm-hmm. of just missionary biographies, and I devoured them. And I'm always trying to get young people to read those, you know, and get animated. Okay, they accepted the fact that you were going to be a missionary. They may have even rejoiced in that. But then when you said, after your husband had been martyred by the Alcas, I'm going into the village. That was hard on them. It was very hard on Jim's parents as well. And I got letters from both sides, from Jim's parents and mine, very carefully and graciously cautioning me very strongly, don't even think of going in there unless you feel absolutely sure that this is what God is wanting you to do. And I, I took that very seriously. I prayed about it, and you know, as I uh, realized that it might be that God would want me to go in there for some reason, he was going to have to show me. I didn't see how it would ever work. If five men were killed, it didn't seem to make sense that one woman would go in there and come back alive. But it happened. And I'm sure it was very hard on on my parents, and I know it was hard on Jim's parents. And Jim's oldest brother is still a missionary, and he has had at least 53 years in Peru, South America. And nobody's ever heard of Bert Elliott. Everybody's heard of Jim Elliott. But he and his wife were never given any children, which was a great sorrow to them. But because of that, they have been able to be free in the summertime uh, in the eastern jungles where it's very, very hot. And then the other extreme is in the high Andes where it's extremely cold. And they are the happiest couple you've ever seen, even though the Lord never gave them children. They have hundreds of spiritual children. And when I hear, you know, the thousands of people that know about Jim Elliott, I always want to say, I wish you could hear about Bert Elliott. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott talking with my friend, Bob Lapine. And we also have with us today, Elizabeth, Nancy Lee DeMoss. And I I noticed just before we started the program that Nancy was asking you about your little brown book. What? Tell, I don't know anything about your little brown book. Tell me about it. Well, I just found this very nice leather-covered, uh, ring-bound book. And this was probably 15 years ago or so. And so I just began filling it up with quotations and notes that I wanted to remember and talks that I was going to give. And out of this has has come quite a wonderful collection of things, mostly from other people. Uh, for example, 
somebody by the name of Parker wrote, God holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. If other hands should hold the key, or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. What if tomorrow's cares were here without its rest? I'd rather he unlocked the day, and as the hours swing open, say, my will is best. And there are three more stanzas. I won't read the whole thing. But I have in the very first page, I wrote to myself, my task is to love God, to make God loved, and to lay down my life to these ends. Hmm. Though I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels, but have no love, I am nothing but noise. John eighteen thirty seven speaks of our being a witness to the truth. And in John seven eighteen, we read, If a man aims at the honor of him who sent him, he is sincere, and there is nothing false in him. So the whole first section is quotations from other people's writings. And then I have a section where I have some of my talks that I've given. And, of course, I have to continually weed those out and put in the ones that I'm using. And then the last is all in alphabetical order, just all kinds of things, addresses, for example. Mm -hmm. And then a page on the absence of feeling God's presence. And I certainly have to confess that I'm one who frequently feels God's presence as absent. Hmm. And so I, I wrote about that, and then I came across a quotation from John H. Newman, where he says, The taking up of the cross is no great action done once for all. It consists in the continual daily practice of small duties, which are distasteful to us. Hmm. It's like a journal in one sense. Mm -hmm. um, as you read things or as you hear things, you just capture them and use them for meditation? Well, I keep journals also. I'm on journal number 38 now. Hmm. I started when I was 16 years old. And uh, so I don't consider this journals. These are things that I want to remember and things that are just very easy to find when I'm trying to think of a quotation that might fit in with whatever I'm speaking about from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a great variety of things that are here, including Joyce Grenfell's hilarious imitation of the nursery school. You know, children, pay attention, please. Everybody turn around this way, please. We've got a lovely surprise for you this morning. So when I go to the Bill Gothard things, the girls 16 to 20 years old, they have gotten the word that, I have to do the nursery school for them. So <laughs> that's in my little brown notebook. So it's quite a hodgepodge. You know, I might have a recipe here and uh, the nursery school somewhere else. It's your life, basically, in a, in a notebook, isn't it? Yes, it is. Bob, I can remember uh, not too long ago hearing Elizabeth speak at a conference where they had a problem with the sound system. And for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes or more, they couldn't get the sound system to work and with several hundred women sitting there waiting for Elizabeth to be able to start her message. And while they were tinkering with her mic and the, the speakers, Elizabeth stood up at the front. I was sitting on the back row, I still remember, and just read, I assume from this little brown book, uh, quotes of great men and women of God. And I, for all those minutes, I just remember being so blessed to hear this wealth uh, that was right there at your fingertips. Do you have any idea where that was? 
in Dallas, oh, in Dallas. at a conference on biblical manhood and womanhood. Oh. I, I noticed, Nancy, that as she read from the first page of the Brown Book, you grabbed your pen and wrote down. I just wrote down that quote. This is so good and so challenging to me. My task is to love God, to make God loved, and to lay down my life to these ends. Well, that really says it all. Mm-hmm. Do you have a little brown book of your own? Well, I think I'm going to have to get one. <laughs> You'll be lucky if you can find this particular one. I've looked and looked and looked. I did manage to get one for my daughter, but that was a long time ago. One of the things I love about so many of the quotes that Elizabeth uses, and I found myself now doing the same thing, are that they're drawn not just from contemporary writers and speakers, but from some of those who walked with God in past centuries Mm -hmm. and are not known to people today, Fenelon and others Mm -hmm. of these uh, writers who are such a wealth and wellspring of wisdom from the Mm -hmm. Word of God. Yeah. In fact, you sent me a book by Fenelon from... The Seeking Heart. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of my favorites. And then I heard you quoting Fenelon, Mm -hmm. and I thought most people don't have any idea who Fenelon is, and yet there is richness in many of these unknown saints who uh, have gone before us. Much, much more riches there than in anything current, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. And I would say that practically all my quotations would be from at least a century ago or two, two or three centuries ago. Let me, let me ask you about journaling. You say you have 38, you're on number 38? 28, 38, yeah. Has this has been a, is this a daily discipline for you? No, I don't try to do it every day. That's why I have a blank, I just use blank books and uh, I write whatever I feel like writing on any given day. It's that, it, you know, there'd be some long lapses where there's nothing, but over the years, I would say I have a pretty good uh, collection of my life. How has that discipline helped you spiritually? Well, I've done it primarily for that reason. You know, I was, it wasn't as though I thought I was writing a book for somebody else or that anybody else was ever going to want to read them. I was really tutoring myself in articulating precisely what is it God said to me this morning. Mm-hmm. So I have to be careful to weigh my words. You know, I am a wordsmith. And so I try to put it down as succinctly and as clearly the essence of of whatever the thing is that I've just been studying. Mm And Elizabeth, I want to say how thankful I am for those journals, because now many of us are benefiting, though we others may not realize it, from that journaling that you have done. You told me recently when I was talking to you about your newer devotional book, The Music of His Promises, that though that's just been published in the last couple of years, that those are things you wrote in your journals 15 or more years ago. And I've actually been using that book as a part of my own devotional life for the last several months. And what a blessing it has been to me and so many of the insights that God put into your heart all those years ago are now speaking to me at exactly where I am at this season of my life and pointing me to the heart of God, the ways of God, the truth. It has been such a steadying force at a very changing time in my own life. You journal as well, don't you? I do, but again, like Elizabeth, not all the time, but I have Mm -hmm. over the years. And it is a, uh, a meaningful discipline, but then also to go back and to review the ways of God as he has uh, opened up the word to me as a precious thing. Mm -hmm. The devotional life and time with the Lord on a regular basis, on a daily basis, is something that uh, helps you walk consistently 
with the Lord, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And my parents, as we were growing up in a very busy home, really modeled the importance of starting the day with the Lord. And my dad, from the uh, first year that he came to know the Lord in his mid-20s till the day he went home to be with the Lord 28 years later, never missed a single day Hmm. of giving to the Lord the first hour of the day in the word and in prayer, no matter what else he had going on that day, no matter what meetings or appointments he had, no matter what time he got home the night before, he was up on his knees. I don't know how many kneeling pads he wore out over the years, but praying for us, letting the Lord speak to him through the word. And this has been a a huge part of the legacy that my dad has passed on to us children. And that was a part of your experience growing up as a young exactly the same thing. Yes, my father was up at five and was in his little little study until almost seven o'clock. Well, and now see, I hear both of you say that, and I think, okay, my daughter's twenty. I, I need to roll back the clock and start getting up earlier and doing better as a dad with these kinds of disciplines. If I want my daughter to grow up to be like Elizabeth Elliot and Nancy Lee DeMoss, it really is a challenge to fathers and to mothers to uh, to not just model but to uh, call our children to the Word and to prayer. I think you're right, Bob, that you can't overestimate the value in the lives of your children of that example. There are many days when I'm tempted to hit my day running with all the piles and the uh, responsibilities, but I always have that indelible image of a dad on his knees. And if parents could only realize, you know, they can make a lot of mistakes and will, Mm -hmm. but if your children know that you take God seriously, that he is the cornerstone and first and central core of your whole life and existence, uh, they will make a lot of allowances in other areas. Do you let anybody read your journals? If I come over to the house, can I read some? Sure. (laughs) Okay. And can I read your journals, too? Well, I might want to censor mine a little bit. (laughs) Just want to see what... uh... There's some pretty personal dealings of the... And mine is really not a diary. It has more to do with uh, how God is dealing in in my life through His Word. But it gets pretty... uh, um, honest and well, David got pretty specific. honest too, and he let us read his journal entries. He he turned them into songs. Right, as a matter and his of were inspired by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and I won't claim that for mine. Well, it's a great reminder. Uh, this is to all of us uh, for not only our personal spiritual disciplines, but also for our need to uh, call our children to that same kind of a spiritually disciplined life. Elizabeth, one of the questions I've wanted to ask you as an older woman, is what could you share with those of us who are younger women about God's perspective on this matter of aging? How does God view that, and how can we look toward the aging process with anticipation rather than fear or dread? Thank you, Nancy, for the privilege of answering a question like that. Uh, I don't hesitate at all to tell people my age and I've had older women say to me, oh, you shouldn't say that, you know. I mean, you don't, you don't look that old. And mm-hmm. I said, I look in the mirror. I know that I look old. At this particular juncture, I happen to be 74 years old, pretty close to 75. And when I look in the mirror, quite honestly, I do not recognize the person that I see there. And I don't feel any different at all. I am so very, very blessed in having practically perfect health all my life. And I don't feel any less vigorous in my old age than I was. But I do recognize it very clearly as a stage 
which I am so delighted to realize is the vestibule of heaven. And I can't help saying to the Lord, you know, haven't I had enough years and wouldn't this be just a wonderful time to take me home? And I realize that it's none of my business when God wants to lift me up there. But one of the things that I think about a lot is that great hymn of how firm a foundation and the stanza that says, E'en down to old age, all my people shall prove my boundless, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn like lambs in my bosom, shall they still be born. And I know that God is bearing me as a lamb in his bosom, and I'm an old woman. And I think I have a right uh, and a responsibility to talk about old age because I'm fed up with women trying to act kittenish as though they were young when it's terribly obvious that they're, they are old. All we have to do is look in the mirror. But I guess there are an awful lot of women who don't look in the mirror for any reason other than to put on a whole lot of makeup that they think is attractive. And uh, we ought to thank God for whatever stage of life we find ourselves in. Mm. Elizabeth, we were in a meeting together earlier today, and you quoted a passage of Scripture that was, I felt, so meaningful along this line. And I wonder if you would just read it for us now from Isaiah chapter 46. Oh, I'm glad you remembered what chapter it was. I wasn't quite sure. Oh, yeah, I do have a marker here. I guess I began with verse 4. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you then liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on their scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in a place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to your heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. And I can rest in that. Isaiah 48 also, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. I love those passages, and uh, they do give such a sense of the control and the sovereignty of God. You've talked about accepting and not rejecting the aging process, but what about uh, those who may feel as older women that they're no longer useful, that they're not as, they don't have the strength they once had or the influence that they once had? What can be the role 
that those of us as younger women have to look forward to as we become older women? I think older women have a not only a tremendous privilege, but a very great responsibility to talk to younger women, to try to help them realize what a blessing it is that they are that age, and then testify to what a blessing it is to be this age. There are things I can't do. There are a lot of things I can't remember. And I think that's one of the most difficult things for me, because I've always had a very good memory and I don't have a good memory anymore. I can remember all the stuff in the past. I've got all these hymns and poems and all kinds of stuff in my head that I don't forget. Hmm. But I can forget what Large said to me three minutes ago. And he'll say, you mean you don't know what I just said? <laughs> and I have to say, tell me again. Please tell me again. Well, of course, it's infuriating to him. And it's very difficult, very difficult for both of us. And I have to try to keep a pencil in front of me so that I can always be writing down anything that Lars tells me. I have to write it down right away because I can't remember it. Dear Mom Cunningham, that precious woman who was such a blessing to me when I went to Prairie Bible Institute, and she had Parkinson's disease. And she, at the stage, the last stage that I saw her, I was, this was some years after I was at Prairie, I went to see her again. And it was only shortly before she died. But she had to hold her hands tight in order to keep them from trembling. But she just had this radiant, mm. radiant face surrounded by white hair. And she this had this beautiful Scottish accent, you know. I, I just loved to hear her. She would say, oh, Betty dear, you know, oh, how I love you, Betty dear. You know, she was just another mother in my life. And I would like to be that kind of a mother to women who would find me available. Mm. I remember yesterday you were sharing with me that uh, about when you met Corey Ten Boom mm -hmm. some years ago. And hearing you share about these older women, I think about of all her works, her books, the one that has probably made the greatest impact on my life is the one written about the last five years of her life when she was an elderly woman. She was had been disabled by a series of strokes and could not talk and was bound to her bedroom for those last five years. The book is called The Five Silent Years. And yet the stories of how people, including the gardener who was caring for the garden outside her house, would be given an opportunity to come in and just stand in the bedroom where she could not speak to them, but with her eyes, she would communicate apparently the love of Christ and grace and people talking about how impacted they were by just being around her. And you, you spoke of the radiant spirit. Mm -hmm. That is what I have always so wanted to be true of my own life. In fact, I have to tell you that since I was a little girl, my single greatest goal in life has been to be someday a godly old lady. And I, I have, I guess, in my mind, a picture of what that means. I have, I'm discovering that the old part comes easier than the, more easily than the godly part. But I'm so thankful for the example of women like Corey Ten Boom and other women who've lived longer than I have, who've walked before me, who are setting this pattern that we don't have to become I think I've heard you use the word curmudgeon before, that we don't have to become irritable or hard to live with or demanding, that we really can become more full of grace and uh, really still continuing to touch 
lives as I know that you are. Well, I'm, I hang on to verses like, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Mm-hmm. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. A verse that you read earlier talked about fulfilling God's purpose. Do you feel, as you look over your life, do you feel as though you've fulfilled God's purpose for you? To a certain extent, I think I can say yes. I I did believe that God called me to be a missionary. I believed that he expected me to be faithful in my schoolwork from the time I was in kindergarten. And I took the classes that I believed God was asking me to use. I I thought that for some reason God would want me to read Greek, and I learned Latin in high school, and then I learned Greek in college. And when I began working on the Bible in primitive languages, of course I needed both the Greek and the Latin. So those were things that God knew that I didn't know exactly why I had to do. And of course I never dreamed of being a radio broadcaster or writing books. I was just going to be a jungle missionary, period. But of course Jim's death precipitated me into writing. And if you write one book, then publishers ask you to write another one. Do you have any goals on your heart, passions on your heart that haven't yet been fulfilled? I still want to be a better wife. Mm. When I think about the very, very short time that God gave me to Jim and and Ad, I look back on those as if everything was perfect. You know, I'm sure they couldn't have been perfect all the time, but uh, I had to watch Ad die, and it was a very long, very utterly devastating process because he was a very big, strong very widely known man and he'd written a lot of books and he was a very wonderful speaker and he got very angry with God and that was an extremely difficult time and of course the Lord has given me husband number three and I I just pray that God will not allow me to become a crotchety old wife you can add that to your prayers for me hmm. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.